0: Hi there, my name's Sam Sheen, and welcome to our podcast, Captivated Audience, where I'm joined, as always, by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lundberg. Good day, Marie. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. I'm doing quite well, thank you. And you? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. It's right in our wheelhouse of interesting topics, so over Isn't to it? you.
1: <laughs> I, I totally agree. It is in the wheelhouse, and we are delighted to welcome Francisco Minas to Captivated Audience. Good morning. How are you doing today?
2: Good morning. Very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about your current role and where you are based, Francisco?
2: Sure. I'm the head of analytics, data analytics in business financial crime in uh, HSBC, covering uh, wealth and personal banking, which is the fusion of uh, retail and private banking.
1: You have quite an interesting background. You are not, as we say, a born and bred compliance person. Can you tell us a little bit about... You know who you are and how you ended up in banking.
2: Almost by accident, but as you know many things in life, uh, because of my true background is in military intelligence. I started my professional career in the Spanish marines as a, as a professional soldier. Uh, I developed my career mostly within intelligence uh, roles, covering things like you know human intelligence systems and data management. And uh, at some point, uh, you know, life took over. We had the second kid and we started thinking about finding a, a second career, something that it was more uh, sustainable from a family perspective. And I ended up uh, taking a role with the standard charter in Singapore, which lasted about two years, covering operational risk MI. I
0: Francisco, roles involving data analytics were almost unheard of five, six years ago. So for people who've been faking that they actually understand what that entails, tell us what your job involves. What does a data analytics person do?
2: Well, many things. <laughs> it depends on what is the scope of of your team, actually, and how it fits within the organization. I've seen organizations where data analytics are, are more technical or more IT-oriented than in others. That's not my case, my background, again, is military intelligence and I'm a, a risk manager. So what we do is we sit more on the uh, data consumption side. So what we do is uh, we extract data, we analyze data, and we, we try to uh, you know, prove the typologies that we've been basically sourcing are the correct ones. Uh, we assess the effectiveness of our controls. We support other parts of the bank in doing, in doing investigations. So more than being on the, uh, on the data science side of the house, we're more on the analysis and trying to find out what the data is actually telling us.
1: Sounds absolutely fascinating. We love the word data and analytics in one sentence. So we have spoken to a few other software vendors on transaction monitoring and incorporating analytics to rule-based systems and all that. And I'm just wondering, Going from a rule-based system and implementing both new tech and a new mindset, can you tell us a little bit about the journey that you and HHBC is currently on?
2: Well, my land business is currently sponsoring a program called FCR 3.0. Part of that program is called Analytics Book of Work. And Analytics Book of Work essentially is a transition between uh, the current rules-based engines into a machine learning model. Essentially, what we're trying to do is avoid the, that old rule that basically you break And again, I'm going to say that the word rule, you break a rule, and then we're going to have to review you as a customer to embed those rules as key risk indicators in an algorithm. So you're not going to be breaking any rules. What happens is that the algorithm will give you a score, and depending on that score, will apply in a particular treatment. Maybe if you do something as simple as moving from country A to country B, in the old regime we're gonna to have to review you as a customer. In the new regime you're gonna come up with a score that is probably gonna be so low that in the end we don't need to review you. So in the end we end up with a more flexible financial ground risk management framework and also a, a much more cost effective one. So
0: let me pick up on that point. And it's really true. You might have someone like myself who's moved from Canada to Australia, for example, and that's the only thing that's changed about me. And it's not good use of the bank's time to have to then check everything about me all over again. It seems as though in the past, financial institutions have struggled to get this right. You know, what they used to try and do was develop like a global set of algorithms or scenarios that they then wanted to apply across their whole group of companies. But this doesn't seem to have proven to be the best way to do the monitoring. Why do you think that
2: is? I think it's a combination of two factors. The first one is traditionally we've been going for the one-size-fits-all. And then whatever was planned or developed by people like me or people like, you know, what my team or my function is doing in Canary Wharf in London, then it would be thought that, you know, what would be the right solution for the 30 countries that we have a footprint the second factor, I think, has been uh, what we would call the traditional sentence of, you know, we've been working in silos. I think over time we've, been, we've become pretty good into uh, analyzing data from the different segments of the customer journey, like, you know, CDD, transaction monitoring, case management. But I think that so we've been working in, in isolation on those segments. And uh, I think there hasn't been more communication between those parts of the customer journey. So, for example, uh, CDD profiles have not been retroactively updated by transaction monitoring data. And that's been part of the problem because then you're going to have customers triggering all over again for the same cause. And then you're going to end up by you know, people asking, we already triggered and reviewed this customer. What's wrong with him again?
1: Francisco, can we talk about profiling as one of the methods used in monitoring? I mean, some uses age, type of products and services, and the definition of what is considered as normal behavior as risk indicators. So here's an example. A man in his 70s here in Sweden was told, according to the media at least, that he was too old for using their digital services. How do we go about making sure that we are not biased when it comes to creating that kind of scenarios or mindsets?
2: Well, when you talk about bias, you need to think about typically three types of bias. Bias provided by the data, by the way the algorithm or the model itself has been designed, and human bias. If you ask me, you know, an 85-year-old person or your 85-year-old customer perform pre- frequent transactions with uh, virtual currencies, my human bias will tell me, well, that's kind of odd. It's not really, you know, what virtual currency, the, the, mental, the, the mental picture of virtual currencies, you know, related with the customers, you know, brings about. But uh, I think the solution for that is it's a combination of a standard and going on a case by case basis. It's a standard because it's all about the data. You've got to make sure you choose a representative data set. And also, you've got to make sure that you're using the right model. More importantly, I will probably say the third step, take feedback and learn. Even if you're using the good data and the right model, you're always going to have something or someone in this case that you could probably say it's out of the norm. Not for the wrong, but for the good reasons, because there's absolutely nothing wrong in, in this type of customer transacting with that product or using those advanced internet services. But the feedback and learning is crucial in this in this particular case, because, again, we're talking about something that could be classified as an outlier, both manual or using machine learning. And then uh, bringing back that data, the results of the investigation or the results of the review into the customer segment will make sure that that won't happen again. And then you multiply that for you know, by thousands of customers. And again, you become more, much more cost-effective and much more you know, risk efficient.
0: So Francisco, tell me a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing. I know you've been uh, engaging your team on a really interesting project involving two completely different jurisdictions.
2: Yeah, we chose uh, those two complete jurisdictions precisely because of that, because they were absolutely, you know, had nothing to do with each other or very little to do. Because what we're doing is, what I pointed out before, as uh, that transition between uh, rules-based engines into, into machine learning. Prior to that, there was a, a huge effort in defining the typologies on all the countries that we have a significant footprint. And uh, by defining those typologies, then you derive a, a different way of thinking. And that way of thinking is what is going to make you think differently when you're analyzing transaction monitoring alerts from two different jurisdictions, like, you know, Malta and Bermuda or Singapore and Mexico. You apply that line of thinking and the knowledge of that typologist research. And a big shout out actually should go to the typologist manager, Paul. Uh, And then what you're going to achieve is a more flexible system because it's going to allow embedding those key risk indicators that I mentioned before into an algorithm in a plug and play fashion. And what I mean is that, you know, if you are operating in a jurisdiction like uh, Mexico, you may have key risk indicators more related to, uh, to corruption, for example, or to traditional money laundering. And then you're going to allow that particular market or particular country to embed those key risk indicators into, uh, into their algorithm. When you will go to another jurisdiction, for example, like Malta, that has a complete, probably completely different uh, financial crime typologies, in this case, more cash intensive related, uh, and then you're going to allow them again to use the particular risk indicators. So you eliminate what we, we spoke before about so the one size fits all. Markets, in theory, should be happy because it allows them the independents to treat their own typologies in the way that they're most comfortable with.
1: That must be quite a massive project.
2: Well, it's still kicking off and we're still in pilot phase. And as you can imagine, it's being affected by COVID-19, as everything in life now. But we're hopeful that we'll receive a good push. We're still analyzing some of the data sets coming. Again, following that principle that, you know, are we using the right model? Are we putting the right key risk indicators? Is the the algorithm telling us similar results to what they used to tell us before? And also has a heavy dependency on on the data quality. We choose those particular jurisdictions because we, we initially wanted to start with two jurisdictions or two markets with high levels of data quality. Again, data is everything. If you develop a fantastic algorithm that is going to eliminate bias and is going to be able to pick out you know, the most interesting outliers or anomalies, that doesn't mean anything if your data is bad. If your data quality is not there, you're just going to feed a really good algorithm with really bad data, and that is going to skew the results.
1: Francisco, you said data is everything. We heard from other guests here on this podcast that data is messy and there is no such thing as perfect data. Data quality and data aggregation can be a hassle. So I just need to ask, how do you make sure that the algorithms that you're using is actually doing its job, simply put?
2: Continuous monitoring. That would be you know, the, the, the very short answer to that. We monitor the results, we monitor the data that goes in, in parallel, and as you mentioned before, this is part of an initiative called FCR 3.0 and other streams of, of the program uh, are specifically uh, designed to tackle data quality. So uh, between working in coordination with those, with those other streams and also a constant monitoring of the data and also working uh, very closely with the, with the chief data officer team, that's how you know, we ensure that the right data is going to fit the right, the right algorithm. We're not talking about something that we're going to be able to fix over the next six or 12 months. I mean, this is going to take years because we're talking about legacy systems, legacy data problems. But I believe in the long run is, you know, is the way ahead.
0: You know, Francisco, in one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about the Swedbank case and the comments of the regulator around saying it's not good enough to classify customers by groups. And how you expect them to behave when it comes to their transactions, you need to link their individual risk profiles to their transaction activity, right, to sort of know what's going on. Do you think the way that you're approaching your transaction monitoring one is going to better connect that customer risk profile so you can actually just know that it's not the right thing like that 70 year old man in Sweden?
2: Actually, I think the future goes through something that I could probably call micro segmentation, which is again we need to get much better not at just capturing the data but capturing the right the right type of data and there's also a, a whole stream of questions that could be derived by by gdpr and other other you know compliance you know regulations but I believe the key here is acquire the data that accurately reflects the the customer habits. So again, you're always going to have the the outliers, like the 85-year-old person that is transacting, I mean, or doing something that typically that person at that age group wouldn't do. But by doing that and expanding the data fields, that's where you gain much more visibility on your customers. And that's where, instead of having like five huge buckets of customers in traditional segmentation, there's nothing wrong in having hundreds of buckets. As long as you have you know, the computer power and, and the data and the data uh, you know, management capabilities to handle that, there's nothing wrong with that because actually in the long run, that's, that's gonna give you a much better visibility on who your customers are and what they're exactly doing.
1: So let's talk about when behaviors or patterns then change quickly. The example here being a pandemic outbreak, If putting a voice to the machine learning tool, analyzing the account activities goes from all is well to, oh, hey, what's happening here? Any risk you see with that? Or is it just a good way to train the the system or, or the algorithms?
2: It's definitely a risk. And I remember, you know, uh, one month into lockdown and COVID-19, a, a very interesting article that basically, uh, you know, the long story show was saying anybody who's using algorithms, you know, machine learning algorithms, you know, for CDD and transaction monitoring, be careful because customer habits are changing dramatically as of, you know, the this scenario that 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 you have described. The solution to that is constant review. I will probably say from a more broader perspective, I think one of the keys here is combining intelligence with, you know, traditional business processes. Because intelligence and that external research is going to give you an idea of how those customers are or habits are changing. It's pretty much what we do with with the typologies work. You go out, you find out, you know, what really, you know, is going on. What is keeping people awake, or how those customers, in this particular case, how those customer habits are changing, and then you apply that to the model. But you cannot do that in this, you know, fast-changing world, especially off the back of COVID nineteen. You cannot do that every six months. You, now you need to do it almost on a on a monthly or or weekly basis. And again, it also have different streams into how traditional typologies are changing off the back of COVID-19 and how traditional typologies are changing and how new ones are emerging.
1: So putting in new typologies or changing parameters in an existing scenario can be time-consuming. What do you do to speed up that process?
2: I know we will talk about, you know, being more agile and using agile methodology, but we probably need to go a little bit more from the talk to the, to the walk in this case. And I think that there's got to be a, probably a better integration between business risk and, and IT. We need to understand what the business wants to achieve. We need to understand what are the risks preventing or affecting those business goals. And uh, we need to get uh, IT more closely with us, but not just more closely because they already are, but you know, a little bit faster and it'll be you know, more, more flexible to adapt to the, to the ever-changing environment. So Francisco,
0: I've been doing some instruction lately on a variety of cases, and Marie and I uh, are recording some podcasts on OneCoin. And there seems to be a blind spot for a number of banking institutions in terms of interbank accounts. So customers who come in and they open a whole bunch of different accounts inside the same group of a bank across a number of different jurisdictions or sometimes in the same country, but across different branches. And they've successfully managed to move around and launder proceeds of crime through these accounts. And they don't seem to be getting picked up, even though if they're looked at in isolation, they look like someone should be asking a few more questions. Do you see there being any potential of our transaction monitoring systems getting better at doing that? Because that seems to be a real problem at the moment.
2: I think that's a reflection of several factors. Uh, One is the working working in silos, again, I wouldn't say you know a, a particular company I would say the whole industry needs to go through a cultural change that will take us from the need to know to the need to share Personally, sometimes I think that financial service industry is more secretive in terms of, you know, sharing data than military intelligence, as weird as, as that that could, could sound. And I think that's something that within NATO in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, especially off the back of the, of the 9-11 attacks, we realized very quickly that in a world basically run by data, sharing that data is probably more important than, you know, classifying it as, you know, top secrets and keeping it on a drawer. And I think the same thing applies to, uh, you know, to the, to the financial services industry. The bad guys know that. The bad guys know that, for example, one of, the, one of the big multinational banks in a given country, it could probably have like two or three legal entities underlying that, you know, the single logo and they play with that and they know exactly which branches they're going to target because they know which ones are the, the main branch and which ones are part of the, the parent one or the main company and the, and the parent company. I think it has to do more with sharing that data and that has to be reflected both culturally and and through systems. And by pulling that data, that's when you can actually detect those anomalies.
1: Okay, one final question from me. Working from home during this time, what has that been like for you and the project?
2: Well, running one of these big projects, it's always like herding cats, and this has been like herding cats that you cannot even see. So, uh, so that's it, it. It has definitely added to a layer of complexity, and it probably has to go more with you know ways of working than than anything else. We always have been very flexible at, at HSBC, and so you know, working from home. But now it's like working from home full time. So uh, uh, yes, you know, it's been a little bit, a little bit more complex. But uh, I don't think it's been something that has really affected affected the project in a traumatic way.
1: Francisco, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing what's going on at HSBC.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: And if you'd like to do like Francisco and take part in one of our future podcasts, or even
0: if you've got some great ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to reach out to us directly on our Captivated Audience website, captivatedaudience.eu, or feel free to also drop us a line on our LinkedIn page for the website itself. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Francisco and Marie. Always a pleasure, never a chore. Until the next time, wear a mask and stay safe.
2: All right.